school suspension is the number one predictor of whether a child will drop out of school, become reliant on social services, or spend time in prison as an adult. Still, students as young as four years old lose 11 million instructional days to out-of-school suspensions each year. And when they do, they take the first steps down a path toward the criminal justice system. What can we do to break the school-to-prison pipeline? And why aren't we doing more to address the fact that black students are suspended three times more than white students and students of color are referred to the police more than twice as often as their white counterparts? This is What I Want to Know. And today I'm joined by Jonathan Cabrera to find out. Jonathan Cabrera is a professor, rapper, and community activist committed to breaking the school-to-prison pipeline. He began his career in the halfway houses of Patterson, New Jersey, helping individuals acclimate to life outside of prison. From there, he moved to New York City's Rikers Island, where he assisted inmates and their transition back to society. Today, Jonathan is a criminal justice professor at Hudson County Community College and Rutgers University. He is with us today to discuss how we can engage troubled youth in ways that keep them from seeing the inside of a prison cell. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. I want to go into some background. You're a college professor, but you really focus on disrupting the school-to-prison pipeline. And in looking at your background, you grew up in Queens and in the neighborhood you were in. In fact, in many neighborhoods around America, it's hard to avoid, you know, the hard knocks. How did you escape that life? For me, I think it's more just coming in contact with certain people, having good influences, positive energy around you that helps out a lot, especially when there's a lot of negativity that's is going to find you, you know, you don't even have to look for it, to be honest, like it honestly finds you almost every day. And you have to every day make a conscious decision to say, that's not what I want to do, or that's not the route I want to go. But it's a lot easier said than done. Anybody can literally end up in prison, in jail, you know, and there's many cases and situations we could look at. It was learning from the failures of, you know, the, the shortcomings of many individuals around me, but at the same time, having certain people come into my life that definitely assisted me a lot. It's fate, it's circumstance, it's timing, opportunity. It's a lot of things. And in talking to young men, I know in in the D.C. area that I work with, many of them did not even know they were being swept into the life. And people talk about the importance of education, but when you're in that survival mode and you're in an environment where you can't be a sheep, then you almost don't have the luxury to think about, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to get in college or my SATs and all that? But at some point, you realized that that was important. When did that happen? I'll be honest with you. My guidance counselor, I didn't even know who they were until my senior year of high school. I never met my guidance counselor. I was never called into the office to meet my guidance counselor. The only reason I went to see my guidance counselor was because my teacher, who was a gym teacher, but, you know, props to her for pushing us, said, hey, your guidance counselors have to meet with you. At the very least, you have to apply to community college or to the four-year school down the block, which was in the middle of the hood. So 
I didn't meet my guidance counselor until my senior year when I was pretty much out the door. I didn't. I think I took the SETs. I pro yeah, I took it one time, but I know I bombed. <laughs> like I was not ready for it. I was not prepared. So I basically ended up going to a four-year university that's just like one level higher than community college, but pretty much at the at the bottom as far as like ranking. Like an open enrollment school. Exactly. Yeah. How did you take to the college environment once you got going? For me, it was pretty good. It, like I said, it was like the lowest level of, I guess, a four-year school that you would classify it as. But for me, it worked perfectly. It was like 15 minutes walking from where I lived. It was very, very much a welcoming environment. NJCU, shout out to NJCU, is ranked as one of the top 10 most diverse schools in the country. I didn't feel like I was out of place. I've pretty much went to school with people that I knew from high school, people I knew from the area, from even the church that I was attending. And it allowed for me to feel comfortable, which I think is the most important thing. I always lead presentations and workshops with that. Your students, before they learn, they have to be comfortable. If they're not comfortable, if they don't feel like they can go there and just be free to learn, they're not going to learn. You know, it's, it's going to be difficult because that's an impediment. And so um, walking into that environment, I've seen people that look like me, people that talk like me, listen to the same music as me. We like to work out. We play sports, this and that. So I didn't feel like I, like I was a, a fish out of water. And then I also had the opportunity to be part of the TRIO program, which it's a state-funded program. You know, I know they want to repeal certain programs, take back the grants and, and things like that. But that program really made a huge difference because I had the opportunity to have my own personal guidance counselor. I, I was able to sit down with her for 30 minutes to up to an hour if I needed to, where I know a lot of students, there's only so many guidance counselors outside of programs. They're probably spending 10, 15 minutes with the counselor and that's it, you out, you know? That made a huge difference for me, you know? TRIO, I know people that were part of OSP slash EOF. So those types of programs, they make a huge difference. Let me ask you this. While you were in school, at some point you decided that you wanted to dedicate your career to helping those who had those stumbles in life. And you were a case manager at a halfway house. You worked at Rikers Island in New York City. What pushed you to choose that path? I was in student government and I had a, a friend that he did an internship at the halfway house. And when he did the internship, he then got an opportunity to actually work there. And pretty much he graduated a year before me, but he said, hey, yo, Listen, if, if you want to come over here, like just to get some experience, let me know. I flag your resume and we'll see what's up. I did that. I came through to the interview. I was only 21 at the time. So part of that interview process was I had to speak in a room full of grown men, you know, about 20, 30 grown men just coming home from prison. <laughs> and they just looking at you like I just came through with authenticity, with great energy. And then I also rap. So, you know, that was something that helps me a lot to connect with the population because not saying you got to rap your way through life, but if you got the, the skill, you know what I'm saying, him <laughs> a little boom bat, it's definitely going to help. And I've seen the video. So, you know, you use your skill at rapping and talking with students to get them comfortable. Like you talked about the comfort level of being in a welcoming environment in, ed in an educational setting is so important. But let me ask you this. When you talk about the school to prison pipeline, with your experience, where you grew up and having been in a school that didn't serve you well and been around people who were caught up in various aspects of the life, 
worked in Rikers, halfway houses, and now a college professor. It seems to me that you have a rounded view of what it takes to sort of jump through those over those hurdles. And where do we start if if you're talking to you know, the president, if you're talking to the mayor, governor, if you're talking to all these folks who are supposedly in charge, how would you redesign things to break up that school to prison pipeline? The first place of education is the home. You know, if there's an unhealthy home environment, it don't matter what the teachers do. It don't matter what the counselors do. That child is going to struggle. That child is going to go through you know, the ups and downs and the turmoil. So if, for example, the president was to hear, uh, create more opportunities for, for socioeconomic wealth to come up into our, our environments. At the end of the day, all of this is a money game. You know, wherever you follow the money, you can see what time it is, what's going on. And a lot of families, for example, even families that are well-intentioned and they want to take care of their kids, they can't even do that because they got to work three, four jobs. Even if there's not more employment opportunities, at least more recreational programs, things where if kids can't be at home with their parents and things of that nature, they're at least still learning positivity on their way up into adulthood, as opposed to, let's say, being outside, you know, seeing the the negativity that can come into somebody's life and things of that nature. As far as schools directly, one of the first things that I noticed when I stepped in Rikers, and I never stepped in Rikers a day in my life prior to working in there, was this sense of familiarity. I was like, for that whole first week, I just kept thinking like, why do I feel like I've been in Rikers before? And, you know, it took a whole week for me to think about it, but I came to the conclusion that it reminded me of high school. It reminded me of going through the metal detectors. It reminded me of getting patted down, getting wanded, the dim lighting in the hallways, the brick walls, you know, and most importantly, it's the ambiance, the energy of the people, because I'm looking at the guys walking down the hall, joking, do, you know what I'm saying? How, even just the way they look, I'm like, these are guys I I'm, I will be cool with. Well, I, I'm going to tell you, I, I knew you had game, Jonathan, but that was pretty astute what you just said, because it really does make sense. I hadn't thought of it like that. And I've been to several correctional facilities, but you're absolutely right. We have, in many of our schools, we've imitated the same environment that you see in these facilities. So it's almost like a natural progression. When you talk about comfort level, the people who end up in some of those prisons or correctional facilities, it's the same feeling of comfort that they had in the schools that maybe didn't serve them well. Right, exactly. And and even deeper than that is some of the public housing that a lot of the kids come from. You know, I show my students a over-the-top view of what Rikers Island looks like. And, you know, usually the facilities are like X-shaped. You know, there's like annexes. They're like the halls are built a certain way so that it's easier to see down and et cetera. Then I showed them a picture of what the projects look like overhead. Same exact thing. And it's like even from the moment that you you're born and you come into this world, like if you grew up in public housing, for example, you know, that aesthetic, that dynamic has already been. It's, it's already something that you're familiar with, you know? It doesn't become as much of a shock for somebody coming from that environment as opposed to somebody coming from, you know, a more suburban environment where they never had to experience anything similar to that. So that, just the architecture in itself, that, that changes a lot of, you know, of people's mentalities and, and the way that they perceive life in general. We redesigned the way education presents itself to folks in various neighborhoods. 
But what about this idea of, of how we teach kids? There's almost this regimented approach where you're supposed to sit still, not move, and follow the lead of the classroom teacher. That's not the approach you take. We know that a lot of teachers don't look like us. They don't look like the students that they're quote unquote teaching. No fault of theirs to, you know, to whatever degree, but it's like you can't like the culture is something that you just have to come up in. You know what I'm saying? Like in black Hispanic homes, a lot of things is movement. You know what I'm saying? Like we we grow up dancing. We grow up like learning how to cross people up on the basketball court or, you know, sliding into home plate head first. So it's like a lot of things are cultural. And so that means that learning is going to be cultural to some extent, too. Like the way that you learn is going to be based off of what you're already familiar with. What makes it difficult for students of color in specific is a lot of teachers and professors, they ban their culture from being present in the classroom. And it's and that's why I use hip hop often, because the students, they consume that for free. So it's like if they already consume this for free, why would I not use it to my advantage to help them learn even further? Yeah, let me quickly go back to the point you made about sort of the number one challenge in terms of breaking the school to prison pipeline is a home life. And we now have generations on top of generations of kids whose parents didn't have that support, whose grandparents, great grandparents. And I still think that the approach that Jeffrey Canada used in in New York, the Harlem Children's Zone, where you build a community around those kids that come from challenged backgrounds. You take a four or five square block radius. I mean, I, I Jeffrey wrote the forward to my first book. And, and when I visited with him, when they heard a girl or a woman and, and they had pregnancies as young as 12, 13 years old was pregnant, they knocked on their door, prenatal care, brought them to classes. They had GED classes for the adults in the evening. They had mentors. No child in that Harlem Children's Zone operated alone. Don't you think there's value in trying to find a way to build community around those challenged circumstances? One thing that I've learned is, unfortunately, we can't depend on the governor or the politician in office to just kind of just come into the neighborhood and just clean things up. Like, unfortunately, you know, especially if that's not the, the agenda, right? Like we have to understand, like, this is not going to change unless we change it. And part of it comes down to just being grassroots in nature, you know, like, let's, let's go back to the old way of thinking, which, oh, you you need, you need some money for, for groceries. All right, let's, let's gather up a fund and let's help each other out and things like that. But it's like I read one time in an article, social media has made people more antisocial and, you know, just the way of thinking has been warped. We've gotten very far away from that. Um, but I think that approach is very important because ultimately it, it's about connectivity. It's about community. You know what I'm saying? So, Jonathan, I have one last question. This is an out-of-the-box question because I asked you about the government and we talked about the community. But this is what I really want to know. What can the average person do in their day-to-day -day life that will contribute to disrupting the school-to-prison pipeline? I definitely think having the conversation. A lot of people are not even aware that it exists. They believe that because this is school, that schools just automatically have your best intention in mind. And we know that's not the case. It's unfortunate to say, but it's true. You have to take everything with a grain of salt. I'm not saying to be hypercritical of schools because they're working with what they can. But at the same time, acknowledging that there is a pipeline, you know, uh, schools that have children of color 
are more likely to have police officers in the school. So you're more likely to get arrested, you know. Um, I remember I showed my class a video of, and I think this was in Orlando, school called the police on a five-year-old girl. And they actually arrested her and, you know, they got a mugs out of her and everything. This comes back to, you know, in this new world of social media being antisocial, there was so many protocols that were missed by the school itself, obviously by the police in that situation too, but the school could have handled that way differently. And I think that once we understand that that's a, a, a reality and a possibility for any of our kids, you know, we'll take it more seriously and, and kind of give them better cues on how to start thinking about their education in general. Jonathan Cabrera, thank you for what you're doing. I, and I want you to know I enjoyed watching your rapping too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You, I appreciate that. Yeah. You've got it going on. So, but thank you for joining us on What I Want to Know. Thanks for joining What I Want to Know. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to write a review too. Explore other episodes and dive into our discussions on the future of education. I also encourage you to join the conversation and let me know what you want to know using hashtag WIWTK on social media. That's hashtag WIWTK on social media. For more information on Stride, visit stridelearning.com. I'm your host, Kevin P. Chavis. Thank you for joining What I Want to Know. Thank you.